Good morning to you all, brothers and sisters. I had my greeting to Scots earlier. What a joy it is to be worshiping our God together and receiving his good word to us as his people in Christ Jesus. Let's turn to the word of God now and read a couple of passages. Our first one is Psalm 73, verses 23 through 28. Just a few verses here from the end of Psalm 73. This is the living and abiding word of our God, so let's give it our full and undivided attention. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in and the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. And our New Testament reading, and this is our sermon text, is Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's let's pray. Oh, our great God, our, our need is, is you and you alone. 
not the words of a man, but the very word of God spoken to us in the power of your spirit. So come and speak to our hearts. Tell us of the Lord Jesus Christ and draw out our love for him. We pray it in his name. Amen. A good flashback can make a movie. Um, uh, my favorite flashback, maybe, uh, at least in, in, in a Pixar movie, is in the movie Ratatouille. At the end of the movie, you've got uh, the little mouse chef, right? And, and he's cooking up this meal at the restaurant. And this, uh, this very harsh, egotistical, and, 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 and threatening food critic comes into the restaurant and, uh, and, and tastes, he sits down to taste the, the food. And the, the dish that's brought out to him is, is ratatouille, a, a simple peasant's dish. But the, the moment that makes it for me is, is when he tastes the food, suddenly we get this flashback to when he's a child. And, and, and he's, he's a little kid, and he's sitting there, and he's eating the same dish that his mother cooked for him. And, and then it flashes back to the present, and his pen clatters to the floor. He's speechless. Uh, with, with delight and joy uh, in, that, in that memory. The, the flashback there is used really well by the filmmakers to say, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. Here's the important thing. This, this food critic has been transformed. He's been humbled uh, by, 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 this, uh, by this taste of this good, this good food. Flashbacks are powerful, and, and they, they communicate a lot to us, and, and they, they help us understand what the, what the writer wants us to understand and take away from, from what's being told in the story. Um, the gospel writers are also good writers under the power of the Spirit, inspiration of the Spirit, and they don't always organize things in the Gospels, straightforward narrative, this happened, and then the next day this happened, and after Jesus said that, then he did this next. Uh, sometimes they, 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 they put in flashbacks, what we might call flashbacks. They, they take something from another point in Jesus' life and they, they say, I'm going to drop that in right here to make a really clear point about what's going on. And at the heart of our text this morning in Matthew 26 that we just read together is one of these flashbacks. Matthew, is, he's moving out of the fifth and final major block of teaching that took up uh, Matthew uh, 23 through 25, the Olivet Discourse. And now here he is, uh, we're, we're transitioning into the Passion Narrative, 26, 27, and 28, the final chapters of the Gospel. He's, he's moving into the climax of the story. He's moving into what is not only the climax of Matthew's Gospel, he's moving into the climax of the whole Bible, the climax of all history. The climax of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ where he comes to the cross and he suffers and dies for sinners. And then he drops in this little flashback. The story of this woman anointing Jesus at Bethany. This story we read in Matthew uh, right here at this point when Matthew says there's, there's two days to go to the Passover and then he tells us this little story about this, this woman anointing Jesus. John's Gospel tells us this actually took place six days before the Passover. Saying that, uh, so, so Matthew is saying, well, let's pause the drama. Let's pause the story that we're talking about, Jesus being betrayed, going to the cross just two days away. Let's pause. I'm going to take you six days back. 
to tell you another story so that you understand how to respond to what's going on here. Uh, the, the goal of everything here is, is that we love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal, that's the response that, that we are to have as we see Christ, the crucified one, going, going to the cross. That's why we're given the story of this woman who loved Christ beyond all measure. Matthew is saying, the goal of, of all that you're about to read is that you love the Lord Jesus. That you love Him beyond measure. That's the only proper response to Christ is to love Him. And to love Him beyond measure. The text unfolds. We'll look at it under two headings. First of all, why should you love Him? Start with verses 1-5. through Why should you Love him. First of all, love him for his authority. As we start in the text, the first that we notice is this authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unmatched authority. Jesus says here, as the text begins, that his death is going to take place during the Passover, just in a couple of days. Uh, Starting at sundown on Thursday, the Passover begins. Uh, Friday is the first full day of Passover, and on that day, Jesus will be crucified. So that's what Jesus says in verses 1 and 2. But then notice what the ones who are plotting his death say in verses 3 and 5. The chief priests, the elders, they're, they're, they're getting together, they're planning to kill Jesus. But what's their plan? They want to kill him after the Passover. Not during the Passover. During the Passover, tensions are running high. The city's packed with people. You could have a revolt on your hands if you kill this, this popular teacher during the Passover. Uh, it'll, it'll bring down the Romans on you. So they want to they wait until after the Passover and then kill Jesus. And so there's two different plans at work, aren't there? There's Jesus' plan, and then there's the Jewish authorities' plan. There's the victim's plan, And then there's the murderer's plan. Now, normally victims' plans don't work out, right? It's it's the murderer who's who's, who's making the plan, who's driving the the action forward, and and he's the one who's got the authority and the power, and the victim doesn't even suspect something's coming. Or if they do, they can't do anything about it, right? In in most stories. But how different this story is, isn't it? Jesus, the victim, is in complete control. And has all authority over the whole situation. Notice also, who's afraid? It's the chief priests and the elders who are afraid. They're afraid of what might happen. They're afraid of what might go wrong. They're afraid of the people. They're afraid of the Romans. They're, they're afraid of all these things. Jesus isn't afraid. Right? In, in these verses, even as he's going to the cross, even as he's going to be betrayed, crucified, suffer for us, He's the one in control. He's the one with with faith. He's the one who's driving the action forward. Um, He has all authority. And we're supposed to see that here. This is one of the dominant themes of Matthew's Gospel, as I'm sure you remember from our our time in this book. Uh, Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel opens with those wonderful words of Jesus, his opening sermon, chapters 5 through 7. And at the end of it, what do the people respond with, uh, they're astonished at His authority. He teaches with, uh, with authority. When He speaks, you hear God speaking. You don't hear a man, another teacher, another scribe. You hear the very Word of God coming from His mouth when He speaks. 
No one can out-argue him or out-debate him or out-reason him. He wins every time. He speaks with authority. And then we see all through Matthew also his authority over sickness. His authority over the storm on the lake of Galilee. What does he do? He speaks a word, be still. And it's, the storm is, is, is over. What does he do uh, in the face of death? He has authority over death. He goes into the, the, to the house of this little girl who's died. He tells, tells her parents, don't worry. She's only asleep. Now, she's dead, but, but in the presence of Jesus, she's only asleep. And he goes and he, he just takes her by the hand. That's it. She's alive. What authority he has. Casts out a legion of demons with one word. Go! And they're all gone. And so now as he comes to his death, Matthew wants us to see it still. It's the same Jesus. Yes, he's, he's going to be humbled and he's going to be stripped naked and whipped and nailed to the cross, but he's in charge still. He has authority still. Even as he goes to his death. Don't you love him for that? Don't you love him for that? Oh, if he has that kind of authority, even in his death, Surely he's got authority over everything in my life, too. We can trust ourselves to him. We can know no matter how bad it looks, he is in charge and he will win the victory and he will accomplish his his purpose. I can trust myself to him. I can trust my loved ones to him. I can entrust the whole everything to him. He has authority. Love him for his authority. The second thing we see, reason to love him. Love him for being our Passover. Verse 2, Jesus tells us that his death is going to happen during the Passover. Um, This isn't just a random detail, a a nice coincidence. Oh, isn't that nice the way that lined up? Uh, No, not at all. Uh, This is the plan of God. Uh, This has always been God's plan. And it tells us something very important about who Jesus is and what his death means that it happens during the Passover. The Passover, of course, as, as you know, is, is when the Jews would celebrate that God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. It's when they would remember what God did all those years ago when they were slaves in Egypt. And, and God came and he brought ten plagues on Egypt to, to, to crush Egypt and to rescue his people and bring them out. And that tenth and, and final plague is the one that is especially remembered on Passover. That's the one where, where, where God said, I'm going to send death on the firstborn, all the firstborn in Egypt. But you, my people, if you take a lamb and you slaughter that lamb and you smear its blood on the doorframe of your house, then, then your firstborn child won't die. And that night, God comes in judgment. Wherever he sees the blood, he passes over. He doesn't enter in and and, and bring judgment. He passes over with grace and mercy. And that moment is is really the defining moment of Israel's history. That's their salvation. That's when God paid the price, brought them freedom from from, from Egypt and and brought them out. Uh, That's when he says to his people, you were a sinful people. You deserve judgment, but because of that Passover lamb, I covered you and I've forgiven you and you are mine. And so year after year, from from Moses on, 
the people would remember by the Passover what God had done. They would remember as they, as they celebrated, as they remembered, as they ate the Passover meal. We should have been slaughtered, but we were saved because of our Passover lamb. And now Jesus says, that's when I'm going to die. That, that, that's been God's plan all along. That, that, that's my plan, that, that, that I would come at Passover and that I would be the Passover lamb. That I would be the one who's, who, who, who is slaughtered and, 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 and the blood spread over my people so that they would be forgiveness. Jesus comes as the one who fulfills all that Passover signified. And He is the one in whom our guilt is gone. He is the one in whom we have forgiveness and freedom and salvation. Love Him for being your Passover. Third thing, love Him. Love Him for being the crucified Son of Man. Jesus tells us in verse 2, that He's the Son of Man who is about to be crucified. That, that, that's a shocking paradox. Son of Man about to be crucified? Th- those two things don't go together at all. If you remember, it's been a little while since we were in chapter 25 of Matthew. But he ends chapter 25 talking about the Son of Man. It's a title that speaks of His glory. It's a title that speaks of His, of his kingship and His power. Um, At the end of chapter 25, he says, the Son of Man is going to come in glory with all his angels and he'll judge the world. And then he says in chapter 26, the Son of Man is going to be crucified. Um, it's It's a striking paradox. The Son of Man, highest position of power and glory and honor that there is, is going to take the lowest position of humiliation and suffering that there is. The highest one will be made the lowest one. The blessed one will be made the cursed one. Before He comes as our judge, He comes as our Savior to be judged for our sakes, to be slaughtered for us as a sacrifice for our sins. Loved ones, what a display of grace and and love. That, that, that He would humble Himself, the Lord of glory would willingly come down and give Himself freely to be crushed for our salvation. And Jesus lives His, his whole life with this in view. This is His ambition. This is what he dri- He's driving towards this. This is what He wants to accomplish. Our salvation through freely giving Himself to us and laying down His life in love for us. We should love Him for being the Son of Man who humbled Himself to be crucified for us. So we love Him. We love Him for His authority. We love Him for being our Passover Lamb. We love Him for being the crucified Son of Man. How should we love Him? That's the second thing we see today. How should we love Him? This is verses 6 through 16. The only proper response to this Jesus is to love Him beyond measure. The text now gives us this wonderful contrast, striking contrast of, of how different people respond to Jesus. And in, in, in Jesus' enemies, and Jesus' disciples even, we see a failure to love. But in Mary, we get this wonderful example of how to love Jesus. Um, she teaches us several things here about how to love Him. First of all, 
Mary teaches us how to love Jesus, love Him supremely. To love Jesus supremely. Verse 6 takes us into the flashback I mentioned earlier. We're brought back, it's a few days before now, and we're in the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. Uh, this is just a little bit outside of Jerusalem, and this is... Uh, this is uh, uh, we're told in John's Gospel that this is a home where, where Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, and his sisters Mary and Martha are as well. They've come over for this meal with Simon the leper, and Martha is, is serving them their, their meal. And then at some point during the meal, um, Mary comes in, and she has this flask of anointing oil, and she comes up to Jesus as they're dining, and she breaks the, the, the neck of the flask off, and she pours out all this, all, all, all this anointing oil on his head. It's an astonishing thing to do. It is a, it is a shocking thing to do, a lavish display uh, of love. Matthew says the perfume is very expensive in verse 7. Uh, John's Gospel tells us it's worth about 300 denarii, um, almost a year's salary for an average laborer. So in our terms, how much money is she? What is it? $50,000 on his head. So the disciples see it, and they are indignant. They're, they're astonished, and, and they're upset. They jump all over her. They, what a waste! You know what we could have done with that? We, 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 could have, we could have sold that. We could have given. You know how many poor people there are around here? They could barely feed themselves. You, you know how much good you could have done, Mary, with, 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 that, with that money. But Jesus disagrees. In verse 10, he comes to Mary's defense. He says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. You could also translate it, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done something precious and commendable and praiseworthy in Jesus' eyes. Jesus is, is not saying, he's not saying uh, that he doesn't care for the poor. You can't read the Gospels and say Jesus doesn't care for the poor. On every page, he cares for the poor. And he wants us to be generous with the poor. He tells the rich young ruler, sell all you have, give it to the poor. But here he says what she's done is a, is a beautiful thing, a good thing. And he, he's saying that, that he is more important still. Yes, oh, the poor, they're, they're, they're important. They're worth your compassion and your love and your generosity. But, but, but more important even than them is the Lord Jesus Christ and our love to him. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus says, Mary, you've done a wonderful and, and beautiful and praiseworthy thing because you have loved me more than, than everyone and everything else. That there's no rival in your heart, Mary, for, for your love for me. If you were forced to choose between Jesus, loving Jesus, and loving all the world, you would choose me. Her heart is entirely given to Jesus. What do we take away from that? Love Jesus supremely like Mary did. Well, does it mean uh, that we shouldn't care for the poor? No, not at all. The New Testament, Old Testament both are full of commands to care for the poor. But we should know that nothing compares to our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole world does not compare to the importance of our Savior. The disciples don't 
share this same affection for their Lord. Not to the extent Mary does. Some of them seem to love their own sense of what's right and wrong, their own sense of what is a worthy cause uh, more than they love our Lord Jesus. Uh, Judas, in particular, does not love Jesus supremely. We're told uh, in John's Gospel that he was the treasurer. He didn't really care for the poor at all. He wanted to take this money, put it in the money bags, and then skim a fair amount off the top for, for, for himself. He is, uh, he is disappointed with Jesus and frustrated with Jesus. This king who has no money and no place to lay his head, this king who says he's a servant all the time, uh, a kingdom where a year's wages are dumped out and it's called a good thing, uh, Judas, Judas is getting fed up with this. And he, he turns against Christ. He hates Christ. This has been, this has been building up in him, and, and, and his, his resentment towards Christ. And, and now, uh, now we're told in, in Matthew's Gospel that he goes to, uh, to sell Jesus. He goes to the chief priests and the elders, and he says, what will you give me? What can I, what can I make off this Jesus? Um, they offer him 30 pieces of silver. That's the compensation given in the Old Testament, Exodus 21-32, for when a slave is accidentally gored to death by an ox. That's all he's worth to Judas. A slave's price. Loved ones, we are called to follow Mary's example and love our Lord Jesus supremely, to love him more than all others, to love him more than, than any other person, as Jesus says to us in Matthew ten thirty seven, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We are to love him more than all others. We're told we're, we're to love him more than good social causes. We're told we're to love him more than money and possessions, he says to us in Matthew 6. You cannot love and serve God and money. It's one or the other. Love Him supremely. He is not content with just a little bit of your love. He wants all your love. There's a wonderful hymn that we often sing. Take my life and let it be. Um, And one of the stanzas goes like this. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Is that your prayer and your desire? Lord, I want to love you supremely. I want to love you with all of that I have to, to love. I want to give all that I am to you so that, that you alone are my treasure and my joy and the one in whom I delight. That's the only proper response to Jesus. That kind of supreme love. Second way Mary loves Jesus is that she loves him generously. This point's so clear, I barely need to say anything about it. Barely need to expound it. It's so clear. The generosity, the costliness of her love that, that, that she expresses her love for Jesus by giving him all that she has. The disciples think she is being reckless in how much she loves Christ and how generous she is to Christ. It's a striking contrast here with, 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 with the, the Jewish authorities. It's a striking contrast with, uh, with, with uh, who hate Jesus. It's a striking contrast with the disciples who, who, uh, who, who, who show their lack of love to Christ by denying Him and running from Him uh, as He goes to the cross. It's a 
striking lack of love in Judas as he gives Jesus to get something else. But Mary's love is generous. Her reckless love is called by Christ a a beautiful thing. Does this mean then, loved ones, um, that the application is go to your bank account this week and withdraw everything, at least a year's worth, and, uh, and give it to the church next week? You can if you like, um, but that's not, the, that's not the point here, is it? Proverbs says, be a good steward of your money. Uh, don't, don't, don't be foolish. Consider the ant and be wise. Store it for the winter. All those things. We should be careful, good stewards. But don't let yourself easily off the hook. Because that's what we do, isn't it? That's what we're tempted to do, to let ourselves off the hook. Oh, good, I, I don't have to be as generous as I was afraid I would have to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be so generous in our expression of love to Christ that to those who don't understand it, it looks reckless and foolish. That we should give Him, lavishly give Him our time. Come to worship and and be glad to give Him time in worship. And, and, And come to our Bibles in the morning and be glad to give Him the time. And to come to prayer and be glad to give Him the time in prayer. And to go to our work and say, Lord, all my work today is for you. I'm doing all of it to the best that I can for you. And to be glad to give it all to him and say, Lord, it's not just the tithe that I put in on, the, on Sunday, but it's all that I have. It's, it's, it's for you. I want to use it for you. All that I am, all that I have given over generously, costly to Christ. There are no limits 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, Christ died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sakes died and was raised. Romans 12.1-2, very similar, calls us to, in view of his mercies, offer ourselves up, our bodies, as living sacrifices to him. Would you have poured out a year's worth of salary and perfume on our Lord Jesus' head, loved ones? Is that the desire of your heart? You say, if I only had more that I could give to my Savior, more of my love, more of my time, more more of all that I have, that is to be our heart's cry. So love Him supremely. Love Him generously. And finally, love love Him truthfully. Mary loves here not her own idea of who Jesus is, but who He really is. Uh, Jesus says in verse 12, In pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. After Jesus died, there would be very little time to properly prepare his body for burial. Um, Those who buried him would have to do it very quickly. And so Mary is anointing him before his death so that his body is ready for for burial. And, And it's remarkable that she has such faith here. Jesus has said over and over that he's going to be killed and buried. And the disciples have heard him say it. They've struggled to accept it. They've struggled to believe it. Remember Peter challenging Jesus, actually rebuking Jesus for saying he would be crucified and buried. Peter says, no, you're not. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Don't, don't tempt me away from what I've come to do. But Mary believes 
Jesus' word and she has faith that he is the one who's the come as the, as the crucified Messiah. Her faith will be tested. It's not clear that she expects the resurrection over the course of the next few days, but, but she still has faith in Christ enough to, to come knowing he's going to be crucified and buried and, and coming to anoint his body for burial, loving who he really is as the crucified Christ, not as the Christ she would rather have him be, but loving who he really is. Again, the contrast here is just stunning. The chief priests and the elders hate who Jesus really is. They love the idea of the Messiah. Oh, they've prayed for the Christ to come. They've wanted the Christ to come. They've professed that they want the Christ to come. But this isn't the Christ they wanted. And so they reject him and they, they hate him and they turn against him. Same way with Judas. At first, he loved Jesus. He loved who he thought he was. He, 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 he thought, what, what authority, what power, what, what wisdom and skill. And, and, and he, he loved Jesus and started to follow him. But, but then the doubt started to creep in. This isn't the kingdom of this world. This is a kingdom where it's the poor in spirit who are blessed. This is, this is, this is a kingdom that requires a lot of suffering. This kingdom tends to make you poorer, not richer, and less influential, not more influential. And, and, and then he gives it up. Uh, the same thing happens so often today. Uh, people have all these different ideas of what they want Jesus to be. And they love their idea of who Jesus is, but not the real thing. They love the Jesus who might say Jesus is the great teacher, who says universal fatherhood of God, universal brotherhood of man. Just be kind. Um, Jesus says... Be kind, but oh, he says so much more. And he came to be our savior, not just our teacher. But people don't want to hear that. Or, or the Jesus who, who says, uh, some people want a Jesus who will write prosperity gospel, your best life now, health, wealth, happy feelings all the time. That's what he'll give you. Or the Jesus who will be your therapist. That's a temptation for all of us brothers and sisters. We want to make Jesus in our own image and fit him to what we think our, our needs are. But, but he comes and he says, no, this is who I am. I'm the crucified Christ, the one who's come to die for your sins and to be buried for you and then to rise from the dead for you. We are to love Jesus as he really is. The Jesus who comes as the one who pays for the, all, all, all of our sins and who gives himself to save us from the wrath of God and to bring us life forever. This is the one we are to know and love because this is who he is. This is the one we are to love. We are to love him supremely and generously and truthfully to know him as he is. Do you love him? How do you respond? You think, well, I don't love him perfectly. I, I, I love him. Oh, I, more than anything, I want to love him more. Jesus gives you a word of encouragement as we, as we close. He promises Mary here that what she has done will never be forgotten. What she did, very generous, lavish display of love, but really a, a small thing, isn't it? Um... She just poured some oil in his head. Not, 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 not a big event in the grand scheme of things. One insignificant woman's devotion to her Savior. But Jesus says that he will remember what she's done 
And He'll make sure that others remember what she's done and that, that, that she's honored, honored for it. And that wherever the Gospel is proclaimed, this one woman's act of love for Jesus will be proclaimed too. And what a wonder, brothers and sisters, that here we are on the other side of the world from where this happened in tiny Bethany 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about it and marveling at it. The point is, Jesus notices when you love Him. He notices when you sacrifice for Him. Don't you hate it when you do something loving for someone else? And they don't notice. They don't seem to pay attention. Or I did that and you didn't even... I did the dishes and you didn't say thank you. I, 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 I did this, I did that, I cleaned up. And you didn't, you didn't say thank you. There's a poem, one of my favorite poems, called uh, Those Winter Sundays. It's about... It's from the perspective of this boy who he's grown up and he realizes all the things his dad did for him he never thanked him for. It goes like this. Sundays, too, my father got up early, put his clothes on in the blue-black cold, then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? This this guy, my dad, he, he did so much for me, I barely noticed Loved ones, our Lord Jesus notices. It's a wonderful encouragement, a wonderful comfort. The smallest act of sacrifice or faithfulness or, 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 or obedience from a heart of love to Him, He notices every one of them. And He'll never forget them, ever. And He'll always honor us for them. That's a marvel of grace. Because you know, and I know, that we don't love Him enough. And even those acts of love that we think we do because we love Him are still, are still mixed with, 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 with not enough love. Love for other things, not only for Him. And we know that we are not worthy of any of His notice. That we are worthy of His judgment. That we're sinners. And yet, He says, when He He remembers that He notices our love. We say, wait a minute, Lord, how can You notice my love? It's all because of You. How can You honor and reward me for for, for an act of love for You? When, When You're the one who covered me with righteousness, died for my sins, forgave me of all, and gave me the Holy Spirit so that I might even begin to love. How, How, Lord, can You reward me for this? And our Lord Jesus says, well, it's because I love you. Because I, 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 I forgave you, clothed you with my righteousness, and filled you with my Spirit so that I could reward you even more. See, our Lord Jesus is honoring in us that which He Himself put in us by His grace. It's all of His grace. So, loved ones, love your Savior, savior beyond measure. Love Him supremely and generously and truthfully. and Love Him knowing that it's all from Him, through Him, and to Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, teach our hearts to love our Lord Jesus Christ. 
fill us up with a, a clear-eyed sight of Him and all His glory and all His grace. Lord, You alone can work in us that which You ask of us. We pray that You would, by Your grace, for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.